Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Shane Moore at Grand Moraine. It's July 21st, 2020. Shane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Rich. Uh, First question, most important question for our purposes here today is why wine? Why wine? I mean, it's such a good question and it's something we think about all the time. I think, I mean, you do need to justify your existence to some extent, I think. And uh, wine is one of those things that I think until you get to know it, it could seem frivolous. So um, it's a question I've thought a lot about. And, you know, I think one of my favorite answers about wine and and why wine is this idea that <laughs> it's an idea that I think is, is really silly and, and makes me really happy all the time. And it's, a, it's called space wine. And one night we came up with this when we were drinking. Um, but the idea is like civilization, culture, everything that we know has essentially been built upon the foundation of wine. And one of another winemaker and I uh, thought, you know, it's like, man, if we're going to Mars, like we need wine. Like, and, and honestly, it's actually happened. Uh, I, I don't know if you've read any articles about it, but the, the people have been sending wine to space now for elevage and stuff like that. So it's like... <laughs> This is cool. Um, so that's why. I mean, it's yes, it's frivolous, but it brings us together. It brings us closer to to the earth. Now, now I think it's kind of come full circle. Um, wine, in the beginning of civilization, actually created civilization. It brought us together. It created it created more of an ag- agrarian culture. Um, Whereas now it's almost that society's come to a way that we use it to bring us back to kind of the roots of civilization in, in that way too, in, in agriculture and, uh, and, and how we sort of relate with the earth. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's delicious. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's As a lot of an it. An added bonus. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's important, you know. I really do think it's important. Uh, whenever I first got into this, I was I was probably your age, Lily. I was uh, just turned 20 when I started working in wine, and you know I had I had sort of I was studying um, environmental science at the time. Uh, I wanted to do water quality, and I had a lot of reservations about th- how frivolous wine is and and how. I didn't feel like I was going to change the world doing it, and I don't think I am changing the world really that significantly. But um, I, I think after you really look into it and feel and get amongst it, you realize how important it is. So, and I think we're realizing it more and more now that we're stuck at home all the time. <laughs> I know I have. <laughs> gotta have, gotta have wine when you're stuck at home. Yeah. So you mentioned you're about 20. Uh, you, tell me about kind of your studies, and, and, and you got into study, you got into environmental science for one reason. Tell me about the kind of pivot, and, and once you decided, once you got into wine, kind of take me on the path through uh, getting into the industry. Yeah, um, I had kind of an interesting one because 
I wasn't necessarily really interested in wine at all. Um, even when I started working in wine, um, I, like I said, I was about 20 and I was studying to do environmental chemistry or environmental science. I was uh, really interested in chemistry, particularly water chemistry. And um, my professor knew a guy who owned a winery. His name was Bob Harris. The winery was Coeur d'Alene Cellars. It was just starting up. And he introduced me to the owner, um, kind of as like an internship, kind of to do their lab work and their chemistry. I kind of needed some extra money. But um, then, you know, I fell in love with it. And uh, I've always been, I grew up on a farm. Uh, so like physical labor was always something that I enjoyed. Um, so the cellar was really fun. I could work in the cellar, get dirty, um, you know, taste delicious things, and at the same time um, do science. And I found that really compelling. Uh, you know, I, I'd always been kind of into uh, cooking and food, and we were, you know, my mom was a big gardener. Uh, we had a cattle ranch. Uh, we provided most of our own food um, through our farm so that was part of it too um, we my dad did make really horrible wine growing up um, and then he coached me on doing it in high school which was probably irresponsible of him but um, you know it wasn't good it was like some cherry wine um, honestly I'd like to try it again I'd like to try to make some lambics or something like that now that I know what I'm doing um, but yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. I fell into it. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily looking to to work in wine. Whenever I, I started working in wine, my first day at a winery was a at work was the first time I'd ever seen a barrel of wine. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was in 2004. So, tell me about you mentioned being getting hooked, and we hear that a lot from people. Get you you, you see wine for the first time, you see production for the first time, and you get hooked. Tell me what it was for you that appealed to you and made you want to like do this made you want to do wine uh, regularly yeah um i i think the first i think it was harvest a lot of it was harvest like how much fun harvest was um how how hard a work it was but you know at the end of the day you could drink beer and clean up and um and it was the camaraderie of harvest uh it was the winemaker i was working with he was really um he was really good at kind of pushing my boundaries and really good at at making sure that I was learning about wine and about tasting. Uh, from the start, everything, it was a small winery. We were only doing 65 tons a year, so I think we had time. He had time to do it. So, you know, he would make sure I was tasting every fermenter and then he would never tell me what I was tasting. He'd ask me, what does this taste like? Um, and, and then he'd say, you know, does it remind you of, uh, like if I'd say apple, we'd be like, but what kind of apple? Mm -hmm. Is it Granny Smith? Uh, you know, uh, you got to go dig deeper than that. Um, so that was really, that was really fun. Um, I found it really, it, it was just enthralling. And, and I think, I think, you know, doing that, I, I had a little bit of, I think Warren, the winemaker, saw that I had a little bit of um, an aptitude for it and some talent, and he really pushed me. Um, so that was great. And you know, when you're 20 years old, you don't really know what you want to do. So that was kind of fun too. It was like, oh, well, this seems like it's a great, 
great opportunity. Um, I like doing it. So, yeah, I haven't ever had a real job since. <laughs> <laughs> what was the work like? What were you doing? Um, you know, in 2004, Bob, the owner, and his wife, Kimber, were uh, making wine basically in a garage in their backyard. But Bob was a trained architect, and um, they got some funding, and they were building a winery. So in 2004, my first harvest, we were literally, I think it was July and August, getting that winery ready for harvest. So I set up the lab. Um, you know, like, it was funny, like, it's pretty wild to think that my first harvest was actually first harvest in a winery and actually setting up a winery. I had no idea what I was doing, but set up that lab just based on, you know, um, basically um, Kim Labs at university. So it was way overkill. It was, it was blown out, you know, um, like run a TA three times before it's a real TA. You know, now we just do bucket chemistry. Um, you, just, you get a little less um, particular. Uh, so I remember setting up the winery and then it was, you know, a lot of grunt work, um, just that sort of stuff, you know, this digging tanks and, and um, cleaning distimmers, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. loading the press at two in the morning, uh, things like that. I did get to, it was really fun, I think, an opportunity I had there that I think even a lot of young winemakers don't get still um, after many vintages is uh, we were trucking all of our fruit from like Horse Seven Hills, Eastern Washington mostly, over to Coeur d'Alene, which isn't really unheard of in Washington. A lot of people truck their fruit everywhere. It was about a four to five hour drive from the vineyards to the winery. Um, so the winemaker couldn't be out in the vineyards all, all the time. It was an entire day. So we set it up to where I would go to the vineyards one day a week and he would go to the vineyards one day a week whenever it was getting close to harvest and pull samples and taste. So I got to start like right away tasting fruit, learning what that's about, um, helping call picks, which um, that was invaluable. I think um, not very many people get to do that even, like I said, after their 10th harvest. So um, I, I mean, I've always been a little bit overconfident and maybe just ignorant because uh, I had no idea how big the decisions were that we were making. So I think that helped. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> so, yeah. You mentioned uh, feeling, feel like you had a pretty good aptitude and, and talent for it from, from the start. Was that, did you feel like you had a pretty good power? Did you feel like you were, those decisions you were making, did they turn out to be pretty solid decisions? You know, I've had a few of those wines um, recently, and they're good wines. Uh, you know, I think, I don't know, I mean, looking back, I don't know. I think we were always picking too late back then. Um, early 2000s seemed like we were really pushing ripeness as far as we could go. But, um, you know, I think, I think the aptitude, you know, I think a lot of it comes from cooking. I think if you're really into flavors and cooking, you could probably taste wine pretty well. Um, you know, it's, it's just knowing when you taste a dish, if it needs more salt or not, winemaking's a little bit like that. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I think that that was it. I think it's, it, almost anyone can learn it as long as you've got a um, sense of smell and taste that's average, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So, so what happens next? What, what happens after, after you're working in Coeur d'Alene? 
Um, so yeah, I, I, so was going to North Idaho College, which is a community college. I think it still is, um, right on Coeur d'Alene Lake, which is some of the best. I spent three years at community college, which was great. Did, did okay, but <laughs> spent three years there. Um, I just couldn't get over how great Coeur d'Alene was as a town. I loved it. So, um, then, you know, after call, after community college, I didn't know, I got a bachelor's, or not a bachelor's, an associate's of science, and thought, well, I'll go study somewhere else, but I don't really know where I want to yet. So, took a year off of school, um, worked a full-time at Coeur d'Alene Cellars for a bit, and, um, and then I thought, well, in the spring, I'll go to New Zealand and, and um, work harvest. Um, this was 2006 at that time. Um, back then, though, it turned out, well, one, the New Zealand dollar was really, really bad. It was maybe like 60 cents on the U.S., which if you're a tourist is great, but if you're going to try to make New Zealand money, you know, I was going to be making the equivalent of like 6.50 an hour. <laughs> and, and visas were not easy to get back then either. Um, I would have had to work under the table and stuff. So instead of working in New Zealand and working at Harvest, I just went and backpacked. Uh, spent three months down there backpacking, um, going to wineries. Uh, I just turned, I was 21 by the time, but you know, still hadn't been to a lot of wineries and a lot of tasting room experiences. So spent a lot of time in tasting rooms. Um, just a lot of time kind of traveling and then kind of planning what I wanted to do next. Uh, so did that, that was fun. Uh, that was really, really fun actually. Uh, some of the best hikes of my life, some of the best backpacking of my life, and some great hitchhiking too. Um, some great stories from hitchhiking, you know? <laughs> you meet the weirdest people. <laughs> so, uh, then after that, I, I came home summer, like June-ish of uh, 2006 and uh, set it up to, uh, went uh, to WSU, to Enology Viticulture in Washington State University in Pullman. Um, looked at a lot of other programs at the time. There wasn't as many as there are now, of course. Uh, looked at Davis specifically, but um, I think they required me to take like another calculus course and I couldn't be bothered to do that. I really couldn't. Um, that was the deciding factor of not going to Davis. And then um, University of Adelaide was quite a bit more expensive, so I decided I didn't want to do that either. Um, WSU worked out. I didn't have to take that extra calculus course. And uh, it was a great program, so. Um, they still let you make wine without calculus? I know. <laughs> Wild, huh? I don't know how I manage. <laughs> <laughs> um, hated calculus. Uh, so, so went to WSU fall of uh, 2006 was when I started there. But um, I needed a job, you know. I just spent three months traveling. Um, I was broke, man. I was super broke. And so I found an apartment that was cheap and, and a roommate that I actually grew up with. And... Um, there was a winery in Pullman called Mary Cellars. Uh, it was the only winery at the time. And I knocked on their door and Patrick, the owner, was there. And I was like, hey man, I, I used to work at Coeur d'Alene Cellars. I'm coming to WSU. I need a job. You, you looking for anyone for harvest? And he's like, yep, yep. And so 
I started working like the next week and I worked there for two years so that was that was great so I got to work um, in a winery I wasn't full-time because I was you know pretty busy with school mm -hmm. um, but it was basically Patrick and myself and uh, and then he he had a, his fiance at the time Kaylani was kind of running sales in the tasting room and so again I got another couple years in of some pretty well he's working with incredible vineyards another really small winery like 60 tons um, and got to just kind of you know set my own hours and run production for him uh, it was it was a great experience Patrick is a great dude um, we still stay in contact all the time um, great winemaker making great wines too so that was that was pretty pretty incredible you know to uh, to get that there was a lot of other venology viticulture students I don't know why no one else had already knocked on his door you know <laughs> but <laughs> it worked out pretty well so um, yeah I was there for harvest of six and seven um, and then graduated uh, from Washington State University in Ology Viticulture um, 2008 it's kind of the first real class I think we had eight of us graduate um, and yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the students are doing great things now. Um, one of my really good friends, Leah, she's the winemaker at, uh, the red winemaker at Chateau St. Michel now. Wow. Um, a couple of the people own their own brands. Um, Chris, uh, over at Soder, mm -hmm. he's, uh, he was in my class. He's the winemaker there now. So like, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool out of the eight of us. I mean, most of us all stay in contact and, and, um, it was a good program, and it's it's definitely grown a lot since then, and, and gotten better, I'm sure. So, you had you had already you were doing you were working in the kind of the real world already, and had already worked in the real world and, and before going and getting education. Tell me about the differences between what you were learning in classes, and what you were seeing and doing in, in the real in real life. Like, what were the what were the what did you learn, and what did you kind of learn that you already had maybe had surpassed mm -hmm. in some way? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, because yeah, I think you know you learn the you learn in college a lot of stuff about winemaking, but it's kind of it's the kind of theory, you know. It's not the hands-on stuff. Um, you know, uh, most of the professors. I remember uh, I, w I took a class from Dr. Edwards, Charlie Edwards, um, who you know that guy is incredible in the field, and um, you know just talking to him about like. What was it? I remember talking to him about making Viognier, and I'd made Viognier for like four years at the point, and like, it was something about, you know, like, yeah, Viognier's really bitter, and he's like, Viognier's really bitter? I'm like, yeah, it's like super bitter. The skins are ridiculously bitter. There's things like that that, you know, it was a really fun sort of give and take with some of the professors, because I don't know if they'd had anyone that had worked, you know, four, four real full years in wineries at that point. Um, and that was actually something that I kind of took into account whenever I, I finished university. And so I really focused on um, the viticulture side. And, um, and we had great viticulture and horticulture professors at WSU. Because I kind of figured, it's like, well, I've been in wine for four years already, but almost exclusively in the wineries. So I should learn as much as I possibly can about viticulture. And, um, so that was kind of my main focus when I was going to school was, was learning as much as I can, could about growing grapes. Um, 
and that, that that worked out pretty well I think I think that was a good decision um, I grew up on a farm so I love that stuff anyway and, and you know it's just you know there's the book uh, sunlight to wine and it totally is just that it's just like just harvesting the sun you just you know most most agriculture is the same it's like how do you get the sun to give you as much as you possibly can at the highest quality so you, you learn that and, and you're off to the races <laughs> I'm curious if at this point you, uh, you, you you've, you've again you've worked in you've worked in the wineries you've taken your courses you have some viticulture now knowledge as well has you started sort of developing philosophies for what you wanted to do what kind of wines you wanted to make what, how, you, how you wanted to grow grapes how you wanted to make wine has that started to kind of have you started to think about that yet mm, yeah I mean yes and no like you know still in 2008 uh, by the time I graduated, I was, how old was I in 2008? Like 24. So I was a bit of an older student, but like, I mean, honestly, I didn't know that much still. Uh, so, you know, I had never made Pinot Noir at the time. I'd uh, always made warm, warmer climate fruit. Um, so my eyes hadn't really even been open to Pinot Noir. I'd tasted Oregon and Burgundy and done these big tastings um, uh, throughout the years, but making Pinot Noir had escaped me uh so and that wasn't even a consideration at that point yet um you know i think wine sometimes uh in my experience has been it's it's like some a lot of things like when you get into it maybe you're gonna get it like it's kind of like music uh and and like whenever you're you're maybe you're first into pop music right like when you're a kid and you're into top 40 that stuff's really easy to listen to and and i think maybe wine's a little bit like that like you're kind of into these fruity wines that are kind of um just easy to drink kind of simple um some people never really go past that some people listen to top 40 their whole life and you know then by when i was in high school got really into like rock and blues and then even into like some harder rock and metal and I think wine is kind of like that too. Like you, you go, oh well, now I'm past these simple wines. I want the biggest wines possible. I want to drink the biggest cabs, and I want to, you know, just blow out my palate every single day. Um, and and then you know, after a while, it's like, well, that's that's kind of gotten old. At least did for me. And then um, you kind of get into this sort of like, for me, it was like Pinot Noir is more like maybe like jazz or classical or something like that. Or, and, and a lot of the European wines are like that too, I guess, not just Pinot Noir. But you get into this sort of place where you're into more subtlety and, and maybe something that's not just yelling at you. Um, a little bit more sophistication or, or like with jazz, that syncopation, like there's that, those little offbeats that... Um, can surprise you and I think maybe the more subtle wines can do that as well um, so I had I guess I, when I graduated college I was still into metal you know <laughs> I listened to a lot of reggae at that point too which is pretty simple music I guess um, <laughs> So it's one of the better wine music analogies that we've ever heard I have to say that's pretty that's pretty excellent <laughs> so you know and then um, graduated and I, you know, you, you think, well, I need a job. What am I going to do? Where, where am I going to go? And uh, this was 2008, but this was before the financial crisis, and things were looking pretty rosy. And I was like, the sky's the limit. Um, 
I, and I kind of was toying with the idea of getting a PhD. I was working for um, a geno genomics lab, Amit Dingra. I was working in his lab a little bit too, um, which was really fun. We were doing some really fun, um, sequencing was just getting like easy then, um, DNA sequencing. Uh, he was working on the Apple genome. Um, we were doing some fun stuff, finding um, uh, certain genes in, in um, vitis vinifera. Uh, so I was kind of toying with, oh, should I go into research? And I said, no, I can't do that. I can't go into research. Uh, so did some job interviews and kind of was like, uh, and from me talking about my, um, you know, music analogies, I am a musician. I was, I've always been really into music my whole life. Um, and I love Austin. Austin, Texas is like, man, I love Austin, Texas. Uh, so there's a wine region south of Austin, you know, uh, the Austin foothills. Uh, went down there and interviewed for a job and uh, got a job offer down there at, uh, at outside of New Bromfels. And at the same time, I was like really wanting to move to Canada because I'm really into skiing as well. <laughs> this is the things that go through a 24 year old's <laughs> mind. So, um, so I went up to Canada and interviewed at some wineries and got a job offer at Burrowing Owl Winery up in Canada. And I was like, man, I can move to Canada or I move to Texas. And kind of the deciding factor, I guess, for me was that Canada, I could drive six hours and be home. And, and I mean, and I did grow up on a farm and my family are, are still on that farm. And that's important to me to be, see that every once in a while. The other thing is my dad has still never been in an airplane. Like they don't travel. So if I moved to Texas, they weren't going to ever come see me. <laughs> So, um, moved to Canada, got a job at a winery up in Canada called Burrowing Owl, um, making great wines. Uh, I was doing their, uh, uh, well, I was, I was kind of like being like a vit tech and, and kind of like a cellar master, I guess, mm -hmm. um, the equivalent of which, um, that was fun. That was, that was a, that was a trip. I mean, uh, you know, you're, your vineyard crews in Canada are mainly Quebecois and people um, of Indian descent, not um, Native Americans, but from India. A lot of uh, Indian crews up there. And it was kind of fun to work with both of them. The Quebecois uh, were mostly young, kind of just backpackers, travelers. Um, I fit in with them pretty well. And then the Indian group were, a lot of them were like pretty recent immigrants. Um, and uh, a lot of them didn't, well, neither groups, it was funny, neither groups, it wasn't funny, it was just the fact of the matter, neither group really spoke English. I had a little bit of, um, of background in French, so I mostly worked with the Quebecois because I could actually um, communicate with them. So worked with some Quebecois crews, um, and that was, that was a trip. That was fun. That was really fun. I loved it. It's great vineyards up there too. Uh, it's hot up there if you've never been, you know. Um, I remember one July day it being 46 degrees Celsius and I'm outside working, shoot thinning with some Quebecois. That was tough, you know. 46 is hot. It's hot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was a good, good experience though. So, I was up there for about a year. Um, I was on the NAFTA visa. Uh, which is still open. You can still get a NAFTA visa and go up there. Um, yeah, I, 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 after about nine months though, 
the Okanagan was kind of hard for me at that point. It was, um, it's quiet, it's very expensive. It's like, you know, it's the warmest place in Canada. So a lot of people have summer homes there and stuff. Um, and, and skiing was great actually there too though. Uh, it was, it just ended up being a little bit harder than I I anticipated it being, so I didn't stay as long as I thought I would. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had an Australian guy named Tom Stransky, uh, har was a harvest intern with us, and him and I hit it off, and he was, he was a great dude. And uh, after about American Thanksgiving, I was like, I think I need to go work another harvest somewhere. I'd, and Stransky put me in contact with um, some people in Western Australia and Margaret River. And it was kind of that same thing, like, he's like, call this guy named Benoit, um, Ben Rector. He's like, he'll set you up. And I called Ben Rector and it was Triple Crown Day. And Ben would been drinking a lot, I think. <laughs> I could tell on the phone. <laughs> and I was like, Ben, you know, I'm mates of Tomo. And uh, he said to call you for harvest. And he goes, oh, you're mates of Tomo? Great. I'll see you in a month and a half. <laughs> so um, I ended up in Margaret River uh, not too shortly after there. That was February of 2009. I ended up down there at a, at a smallish winery, definitely small at the time, called Deepwoods Estate. Um, living on site, it was incredible. That was incredible. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I could keep going if you want to tell me about Deepwoods. I ended up, uh, I love that place. Uh, Great wines. I mean, they won the Jim, James Holiday Trophy uh, several times in the last few years. Um, their Chardonnays are incredible. I think that's where I really got into like making Chardonnay, and and that's where I got into this idea of of um, like earlier picking. You know, like we're making cabs and picking them at uh, 12 and a half, 13 Beaumet, whereas in America in Washington, in the cabs I was making, even up in Canada. We were picking at 25, 26 bricks, you know, which is 14 Beaumet, 15 Beaumet. Um, and, you know, and they were making these great wines that were just like being picked almost a month earlier than probably we would have been picking, particularly the whites. Um, so I learned a lot about that. That kind of really informed a lot of what I even still do today. Um, and then just learned a lot about having fun and making wine down there. Um, I mean, Australians have a lot of fun making wine, I think. Uh, so I, I really fit in well down there. Um, it, was, it was just great. I still consider Margaret River my second home. Um, if it wasn't so far from home, I think Perth and Margaret River is probably about the farthest you can get from Pullman or Portland, Oregon in terms of a commercial flight. You can't really go farther than that. Uh, I loved it there. I loved it there. I mean just made the best friends of my life. Um, so that was 2009, uh, did that harvest, kind of worked night shift. Um, it was a small crew, Ben, actually the, the winemaker, um, there were two winemakers, Ben and Travis. Ben got sick and like bad sick during harvest. So it ended up being this French guy named Julian and I just holding down the fort on night shift. And that was, that was intense too, so. Uh, <laughs> Um, we did a good enough job, they invited me back, so um, that fall I went and worked harvest in Sonoma County at a, at a Custom Crush facility called, um, shoot, what is that Custom Crush facility called? Vinify, Vinify. 
that was fun. Um, worked with a lot of great winemakers there. That was the first time I really started working with Pinot. Um, Greg Bjornstad stands out as a great Pinot winemaker down there. He's a legend. Um, you know, one of the, I think, founding people of Flowers, I believe. Um, worked with him, worked with Sojourn. Uh, Bevan, Russell Bevan, who was making some incredible cabs. Uh, they were all making wine at this facility, so got to make a lot of great contacts. Got to um, really, uh, really get to know a lot of great people in Sonoma County. Learned a lot about Pinot Noir winemaking. So I think that's where I kind of got the bug for Pinot Noir winemaking was there. Mm. Um, that was fun. That was a fun harvest too. Uh, met my, well, met a lot of great people. Met my now wife at that harvest as well. She was working at Mary Edwards in production. Um, we didn't start dating while I was there. Uh, we didn't start dating until I went back to Margaret River and she was back there um, in 2010. So like six months later. Uh, I mean, I guess the other fun thing about that harvest is I lived, by that point I'd been working in wine for about five years mostly talking about wine, just living wine for five years straight, essentially. Um, everyone I lived with worked in wine. Every, it, that was all. I, I was like, I can't take this anymore. I gotta like, I gotta get out of this a little bit. Um, so I started looking for a place to live on Craigslist. I was like, anyone that doesn't make wine. <laughs> I, and I saw this ad for this place uh, and it's like, I, I'm you know, just gonna butcher the ad. It was a hilarious ad. It was like, do you like loud music and partying? And I was like, yeah. And it's like, come live at the metal mansion. <laughs> and and it was this, uh, so I ended up living with this um, band called Trial by Combat. <laughs> In this old house called the metal mansion. It was great. It was so nice to like not live live with wine people for a bit. and. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I guess I was still kind of into metal then. That was kind of fun. That was wild. So I lived at the metal mansion. <laughs> Made wine. <laughs> yeah, this is incredible. Stuff. You haven't gotten to Oregon yet. This is incredible. Yeah, yeah long story. Back, yeah, then went back to Margaret River, worked another harvest down there. Loved it again. It so great. Um... That, at the end of that harvest, I was like, okay, I want to work a double harvest. I want to go, I want to work like Israel and Germany. That was my plan. I was like, I can go to Israel, I can work a harvest down there, and then I can go to Germany and work a harvest. Like, I, I don't know why I thought that was the, what I wanted to do, but that, was, that seemed like the reasonable thing. And Tomo, again, um, you know, uh, this guy, he knew everyone. Uh, he's like, all right, well, if you want to work in Israel, I know a guy named um, Michael Avery. He's the winemaker at Yard Inn, Golan Heights Winery. Give him a call. Called him up and uh, yeah, he's like, yep, cool, uh, you know, we're kosher. You're not Jewish, you don't observe the Shabbat, you can't touch anything, but we have a research winemaker job open every harvest. Um, and they're a big winery. If, you, if you're into kosher wines at all, Yard Inn's like probably the be all end all of kosher wines. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would argue with that, but, but I'd stand by that. Um, so yeah, man, ended up uh, working at Yard Inn uh, in 2010. Uh, got over there by the end of July and uh, Sparkling Harvest had just started and that was that was fun. Uh, lived at Kibbutz Machanine, um, right outside of Rosh Pina. Um, 
they, that was a fun, fun experience. I think they paid me a thousand dollars a month in U.S. dollars cash, and uh, gave me a car and paid for my house. So it's great. And I had a gas card, so I could drive all over Israel. And if you're working in Israeli wine industry, almost all of the um, Jewish holidays are during harvest, so you get all those off, which was a trip and you get one day a week off so man that was fun that was really fun um what do you what do you do as a research winemaker if you can't touch anything so they have like a little a little tiny they call it their micro winery um it's maybe like four or five hundred square feet um a little tiny distimmer a uh, lot of carboys um and they just kind of come up with all these sort of um harvest uh, you know experiments they, throughout the year that they want to do is it a yeast trial is it a nutrient trial um, is there something that you want to do is it a picking trial um, and so we we're managing I was managing you know probably 20 different trials and um, and then you know I'd already worked in the industry long enough to where they trusted me to like write work orders and and stuff and and check all the fermentations every morning so I'd get there at four in the morning um, I'd, I'd meet up with um, one of the um, the cellar workers who um, made sure that I didn't touch anything, and he'd go open up all the tanks for me and smell all the tanks, taste the wines with the winemakers every morning. So it was an incredible experience. You got to taste so many wines, um, and then and then write some work orders and go do some research for the afternoon. Um, it was really a cool experience. Uh, learned a lot about sparkling winemaking there. Um, they make great sparkling wine. I'd never made sparkling wine before, so I think that informed a lot about what I do here. And then I think the thing I learned the most in Israel is, is um, everyone has a military background in Israel for, for the most part. Uh, all the cellar workers did, all the winemakers did for the most part. And so the place was run like a military um, operation. Everything was set by a clock and everything was done exactly a certain way and everything had double checks and triple checks to make sure that no one was going to mess anything up. And I was like, these guys know what they're doing. They know how to run a winery. Um, so, I mean, we're a tiny little winery and I run it like a military <laughs> operation. But it took a lot from that. Um, and that's how you, you're efficient uh, and you don't make mistakes. And I think that's, you know, two of the most important things during harvest is we're all tired and, and we have a lot of chance of making mistakes and you have to be efficient. So um, that was that was a great experience. That was that was really cool. And I got to live in Israel and Yarden and, and the Golan Heights is the most heavily mined area in the entire world. Um, you know, it was it was a trip, man. It was a trip. Uh, it was so cool. It was so cool. You know, you could go up to some of the top tanks and see Damascus, uh, you know, like you go to some of those, uh, you know, 50,000 liter tanks that are 100 feet tall or so. And like you could see, you know, so much of Syria and so much of Israel and wow, wow, it was crazy. Um, yeah, and that was right before the Arab Spring, which um, got to do a lot of traveling in Jordan, the Sinai Peninsula, um, Palestine, which, uh, I don't know if I could have done afterward. Um, Palestine probably still, but Sinai Peninsula is not really open still. Um, at least they tell you not to go there still. So. <laughs> um, yeah, that was fun. 
uh, yeah, then then uh, then went back to Margaret River again because it was so amazing. Uh, my wife was traveling. My future wife was traveling with me at the time, so went back to Margaret River together. Uh, worked another harvest. She worked at Stella Bella, which was making great wines. And um, at that point, we'd worked, I lived out of backpack for about three years. Uh, she'd uh, lived out of the backpack for over two, I think. And we were like, we need a real job. We need to like, we need to be adults <laughs> or something. So we started looking for a real job and um, came, we were like, okay, where are we gonna live? She's from Sonoma County, I'm from Idaho. Um, the Willamette Valley was like, that's halfway in between both. Uh, we both really liked it here and we're like, let's move to the Willamette Valley. Um, but that was 2011 and I don't know if you remember 2011 we got here about the 4th of July and like the the vines weren't even to the first wire yet you know and uh, there was no flowering even like they weren't ready like it was like I remember walking vineyards with some winemakers in 2011 and going Claire they're not gonna have a harvest this year let's go to California because like this is not looking very good for job security <laughs> if we try to get a job up here um, and and you know it was a miracle harvest that everyone pulled it out and somehow you know they didn't get frost until November and and I, I still can't believe that that harvest happened but um, at that point we went back to Sonoma County and was doing some interviews uh, my wife got a job at Ferrari Carano as kind of a vit tech um, and I got a harvest enologist job at, at La, La Crema, um, which, you know, that was, it was kind of temporary at the time, but they kind of said, you know, if you work out, the economy's getting better, we need to be hiring some people back. And um, that worked out. So, so I was at La Crema for a bit, and about a year later, we started um, looking at, we being the Jackson family, um, wine um, family. Uh, and ownership started looking at uh, some of the vineyards up here that were for sale through PPV and Calpers projects mm -hmm. and uh, I mean kind of I've explained I kind of knew the vin area already I knew some of the winemakers up here already um, we were you know flying winemakers from Sonoma County up here to call picks and stuff and I knew the vineyards that that um, the Zena Crown Grand Moraine vineyards that we ended up buying uh, so you know I was like hey you guys should send me up there and because I want to make the wine up there we've been wanting to move to Oregon anyway um, and uh, you know it took some time to convince them I think they they're like yeah Shane you know, it's like 28 at the time and I would only worked for them for like a year it's like yeah we'll let you run a whole state sure <laughs> but evidently they couldn't find anyone better so <laughs> they let me do it <laughs> worked out pretty well so yeah I've been here since uh, I think it was Bastille Day we were partying in Sonoma County I had it th throwing a big Bastille Day party and I got a call from the GM at La Crema and she's like you know some of the executives are gonna ask you if you want to move to to Oregon tomorrow just so you're aware I was like awesome and like a week later we had found a house up here and and yeah we were, we were moved up within like three weeks so worked out pretty well so what were your it was your initial charge what were you what were you in what were you asked to do once you moved to oregon yeah so you know in 2013 uh when i got up here uh 
we were just closing on what's now the Grand Moraine Winery. It was owned by Laurent uh, Montaigu, uh, and it was the Selena Winery at that point. We're just closing on the facility. Uh, Laurent, it worked out really well for everyone. He didn't really need the facility anymore. He'd built, um, you know, the Northwest Wine Company for a production facility. And uh, so we're just closing on this. We already had the vineyards, but we didn't have any farmers yet. Ken Kupperman, who's still farming them, was farming them, but he was farming them under Atlas. And, you know, my kind of job was to work with Ken and get in all the estate fruit that we needed to get in. We were making wine at 12th of Maple. Um, and then we made wine here. This is about a 200, well, at the time it was 250 ton facility. We've expanded it a little bit to be more like a 350 ton facility. Uh, we made 100 tons of Pinot Noir here, that vintage, and probably about 400-ish tons, if I remember right, over at 12th of Maple. Um, the only brand that really existed for Jackson family at that point up here was the La Crema Willamette Valley label. Um, but we were working on starting this Grand Marine label and we had the idea of starting the Xena Crown label as well. So this was always kind of the idea of being the home of, of Grand Marine. We were thinking we were going to build a winery down on Xena Crown, but um, it didn't really make as much sense uh, at the time as what we first thought it was going to. Uh, so yeah, um, you know, I was basically calling all the picks, working with Ken, working with some of our other growers. We were buying some fruit at that point as well. And then, um, you know, working with the, the crew that managed this winery as well as the crew at 12th of Maple. So that was a big job that first year. Um, Eugenia Keegan, our now GM, uh, she, she was consulting for us. She wasn't uh, a full-time hire yet because she was still working with the Four Graces as well. So, um, yeah, it was just me. It was just me as a the Jackson family employee up here. Um, and I, I think that, you know, they, I think me having institutional knowledge of Jackson family and the, the company in California and knowing up here, I think that was what ultimately led them to choose me to do that because um, I could kind of put one foot in both places um, and it was a hard harvest I mean you know it was looking like it was really great until the end of September and we had just picked of like two or three picks and then it really started raining you know um, and I wondered what I got myself into because I think it rained almost 10 inches that harvest you know but um, ended up okay the wines were good we still, the 13s are drinking great, so um, it ended up okay. <laughs> you worked in a, a lot, I mean, even by winemaker standards, you worked in a lot of places by then a lot of different regions. Tell me what your initial thoughts were on Oregon and how it compared to some of the places you've been on the Oregon wine industry, I guess. Specifically. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, in terms of Pinot Noir winemaking, uh, it's definitely... I think it's more of a challenge than where I'd worked in Sonoma County in, in a lot of ways and with the, the climate and all that. We're, we're more on the margin, um, which, you know, places that are on the margin are those places that make the best of those varietals. So I think that's a positive for us. Um, in terms of the culture, you know, it it's Northwest. I grew up in the Northwest, so the Northwest culture is, is real here. Um, the food and... and and just how we interact with people. I mean, you can never tell if you're dressed up to go to a nice dinner 
or if you're just going to go for a hike for the day, you're wearing the same thing, you know. Um, actually, one of my um, resolutions when I moved here was to never wear a collar again, so t-shirts only. How's that going? It's gone great. I don't think I've had a collar on for like five or six years. <laughs> it's good to have you back in the Northwest. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be here. Um, and, uh, you know, and then it kind of reminded me of Margaret River, the, the wine industry itself. Uh, you know, we're both about the same age. Uh, we're both just over 50 years old now. Um, then there's been just kind of a few generations of people and the older generations always wanted to help the younger generation. Uh, we're both kind of isolated and out there in terms of um, geography. Um, so it's kind of felt like that in some ways. Uh, there's this really great collegial spirit. You hear it over and over, but it's true. I mean, people wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. Um, and that's been the fun part. And and everyone wanted to get to know, you know, who Shane Moore was whenever I moved here. And the, there was some confusion because there's another Shane Moore that lives in McMinnville that is a vineyard manager. So everyone's like, and he has a red beard. So <laughs> it confused me too. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you. So yeah. It's it's still, you know, you go to get your season pass at at a Bachelor of Hoodoo, I think it was. I think it was Hoodoo and they're like, You've already got your season pass, Shane. I'm like, No man, there's believe me, there's the other Shane Moore. Just believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh no, it's you know, I think I think it's an amazing place to make wine and, and to have friends in the industry. I really do. I stand I mean, yeah. I love it here. What was the reaction for you? I mean, obviously there was there was a lot of concern about Jackson family coming to Oregon. I'm curious how you were received by people when that was when you were coming like with the Jackson family flag. Yeah. Um you know, I think well, one Jackson family did a really good job of like wanting to integrate with the community and and do the right things, you know. We we came out and really supported some of the the great causes that the wine industry is behind straight away, like Salud and um and you know we didn't want to come out here and, and make i think a lot of the reservation of jack's family coming into the Willamette valley is oh they're going to make a 12 dollar pinot noir and um ruin the brand of the Willamette valley well if anyone knows you know the ownership of our company that is the exact opposite of what we strive to do um so i think everyone was like really relieved whenever they saw the grand Marine label and like the the price point and and then tasted the wines that we were putting out um, so I think there was that, and then, you know, myself, I think, and, well, hiring Eugenia was a big deal because uh, getting, she knew, knows everyone, of course. She's been a stalwart of the industry for a better part of a decade. Um, so she really helped navigate those waters. And then, you know, I grew up here, so it wasn't like they were sending someone from Sonoma County who, who didn't know about the Northwest or, or had no idea um, or just wanted to come up here and and say, well, this is the way we do things in California, you country bumpkins. Um, so I think I think that was a positive as well. Um, so you know, there was I think there was some reservations, but but it was it was really fun. And then my wife, she came you know with us as well. She quit her job. She was um, working full time for um, as an assistant winemaker at a small winery called Everett Ridge, and she got a job at Belpont for harvest, just to work harvest and like. That was really fun because I got to know the Belpont crew really well and, and a lot of the smaller wineries around. And um, 
made a lot of lifelong friends that harvest. So, so obviously, you, you mentioned you, you were brought up here to kind of develop this, and obviously, it's it's developed very nicely. So, tell me about kind of your what what the goal was for Grand Moraine, and, and sort of your your role in, in helping it become what it is now. Yeah, um, you know, whenever we started the Grand Moraine brand and the Zena Crown brand, um, we wanted them to be a state vineyard focus. A lot of what Jackson Family does is, uh, you know, they're almost like a real estate company in some ways. They buy these incredible vineyards and, and properties and we, a lot of the time we try to tie a brand to those vineyards that helps elevate the, brand, the, the vineyard and it helps, you know, develop, um, uh, I guess, value in those assets. So sort of the goal was to create like a world-class um, winery around that vineyard, kind of like what Shea has done, but do it differently. Um, and we wanted to keep the Grand Marine and Zena Crown names uh, because, you know, there was already like Beauferrer doing a single vineyard Grand Marine uh, and a Zena Crown, Pinterash doing a single vineyard Zena Crown. Uh, so there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of appeal in keeping those names and, and a lot of, uh, I guess, awareness of, of the vineyards and, the, and the, the brand already. So with that, you know, what I wanted to do was take this brand and make more of like a, I wanted to make a style that maybe Jack's family didn't necessarily have in their portfolio, not just Willamette Valley, not just Yamo Carlton, but something that's maybe, I mean, if you see the, the package and it's, it's very almost old world it's very classy it's it's elegant it's it's subtle and that's what i wanted to do with with the wines was create something maybe a little bit more subtle a little bit more sort of um sophisticated and and um and kind of quiet and those are the wines that i like to drink um those wines that that are like a good friend that you know you can have a conversation with instead of wines that are like you know um big bold wines that that just want to talk at you um kind of like what i'm doing right now so. we're, we're making you do that though it's okay you're, you're being forced so tell me about about making those kinds of wines obviously you you had made wine a lot of different places you made wine a lot of different kind of styles tell me about finding that subtle style that fit with the, with the place you're making wine um you know i think I think we get a lot of leeway in Oregon because of the the culture that's been um, created here through the years with the connections to Burgundy, um, both with the people. I mean, there's there's a lot of people that make wine here from Burgundy um, and from France, but with the climate as well. And and so, you know, if if I was trying to make like, the, let's take our Chardonnay for example, um, it's you know very low alcohol. Um, very high acid, um, more sort of saline and mineral driven than fruit driven. If I tried to do that in California, people would think it's like, what is this? It would it would not really fit with with what has happened in the past there, and uh, what people think about whenever they think about wines from a particular region. So you know, I'm able to make wines that are more the way that I want to make. But I'm allowed to, partly because of the culture, partly because of people understand them if they're coming from here. So that's been that's been nice. I haven't had to fight that, you know. Um, and then Pinot Noir, kind of the same way, you know, kind of the same idea is we're able to make a little less extracted, um, more elegant style, and 
that's to be expected from Oregon. So, um, you know, and it's both the culture and the climate that, that give us that. So thank you, all those that came before me. <laughs> Has your role shifted since you started? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whenever I was first here, I was helping kind of do all things with Oregon, um, with La Crema, with, um, you know, all, just trying to start a whole new infrastructure of, of a wine company in Oregon. And, you know, uh, 2016 into 17, we started uh, building a, a winery in McMinnville, we being Jack's family. And, and at that point, I'd hired an, another winemaker, uh, Sam Paleman, who's a great winemaker. And, and I was like, I don't want to run a big winery. I like this little winery. I like the, the two small brands that we're doing. This is what I'm really into. Um, so I kind of spun, spun off a lot of that to her and she manages that winery. She manages the La Crema brand um, winemaking up here. Um, so I have nothing to do with it anymore. Uh, and I'm pretty, I mean, it's great. I, I get to focus on the little minutia, the more artistic side of, of just the little things here. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's what I like and that's what I really wanted to do in the first place. So yeah, in some ways my roles shrank, which has been great for me in terms of, of you know, really focusing on wine quality. And I think the wine show, it's um, every year I think we're getting better and I think you, everyone should do that. But I think starting in about 2017 when I was able to really focus on these wines exclusively, I think is whenever we really took that bar up another level. Tell me about getting to know the site. Uh, tell me about getting to know Grand Marais, getting to know Zena Crown. How long does it take you to, to understand your vineyard, understand what you're going to get each year? Yeah. Um, you know, this is the longest I think I've ever worked with, um, you know, a, a site. This will be my seventh harvest or eighth harvest, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, eighth this year. Whoa. Um, with the same blocks, you know, and the same uh, grower and um, yeah, same vineyards and it's it's great. Um, it's really fun to get to know like each block um, and it makes your life just so much easier and so much better. Like I know what's going to flower first. I can go check on that and be like, okay, um, you know, one of my earliest blocks on Grand Moraine. Uh, I would say flowered about June 9th and I know that in the last seven years I've picked it about 85 to 95 days post flowering so I was there on June 9th I was like yeah it was flowering today all right I'm gonna be picking this and within these five days I would almost guarantee you that you know um, so knowing the site and knowing that and knowing what to expect you know wow so cool um, you know, it's it's like you know being married in some ways, or you know getting to really know someone and living with someone for a long time. It's just like you know, there are little things, you know, you know, you know, like after a nap that you probably shouldn't bother them for 20 minutes. Like, um, 
that's kind of it's a hard one to learn you right know <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it's like oh yeah i know that the top of this block here this vineyard here it's ugly it's like the so so soils are really thin and like it never makes it the top wire and and I know not to be worried about it because it still makes some of the best wine in my whole winery every single year, despite it being like a pretty feral looking block. So um, that's pretty cool. That's been really fun. I, I love that. Yeah, it's just, you know, you want to make sure you're not getting complacent, I guess, with with getting to know these things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, that's why you just got to keep it fun and interesting, do different things every year, try your best. Uh, but yeah, getting to know the blocks has been great. It's been really fun. It's been great. Is there anything unique about Oregon from in terms of grape growing? Are there any unique pr uh, disease pressures or, or, or is there anything that you've had to learn here or deal with that you hadn't dealt with before? Oh man, I mean everywhere has its kind of things. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of that here. Uh, you know, it's Whenever I talk to some of my colleagues in, in other wine regions, you know, and I talk about being a 300-ton winery, they're like, wow, that must be so, like, easy. And it's like, well, we still have 120 fermentations going, you know. Um, everything's on a different scale. Like, all of our blocks are, you know, in California, you can go to um, Pinot Noir blocks that are set up as 20-ton, mostly 20-ton, 20-40-ton to be like, all right, this block is going to be two truckloads. Um, whereas here, it's like they're set up to where they're like, no one has tanks bigger than five tons. So you plant your blocks to be no more than five tons, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's things like that um, that are interesting and in scale. And then, yeah, there's there's a lot of different things. It's, it's warmer at night here than I thought it would be, uh, which is interesting. Um, so, you know, we don't have as much acid as what, particularly in Pinot, as what you would anticipate it being this far north, this close to the ocean, which I found really intriguing when I first started making wine here. Um, and most people, I mean, it's not something we talk about as a wine industry that much. Most people don't talk about it. Um, so it wasn't something I knew anecdotally either. Uh, and then the humidity was really interesting here. like. Summers can be, when it's hot, it can get humid here. I mean, it's that, that amount of rain, but like, I mean, I grew up in Idaho, like it can be 95 degrees and there's no humidity there. And, and it's, it, it, it's really nice to be outside here. 95, it just is brutal, you know? Um, which, you know, the humidity can cause some more disease pressure than, than what you would anticipate as well. So little things like that, little, little interesting climatic things and then how diverse it is too climatically i mean who knew that and you can be told that the old amity hills is windy but until you're down there in july in the afternoon and at 4 30 the wind really rips up and it cools down for 10 degrees you don't really know mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um so yeah that's been kind of fun So what are the biggest differences you've seen in, in Oregon since, since you got here? You, you've been here, like I said, this is your eighth, eighth harvest here. So what, what's changed in the Oregon wine industry from when you started to, to now? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think some of the biggest changes in the wine industry haven't really had to do with production, but having more to do with 
the world recognizing um, Oregon as like a really top quality wine region. Um, you know, it it seems like the amount of recognition uh, the Willamette Valley has gotten in the last five or six years has been incredible. You know, um, people people are, have really gotten behind how great the wines are and 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 what we're doing here. Uh, so that's that's been really fun to watch. That's been really really fun to watch. Um, I think that's been the main difference. You know, there's of course more new vineyards. There's of course new people from different regions coming in. But that, I think that's happened all along. That's that's just a, you know that's something that's going to happen um, no matter what. Um, it's been it's been really cool to see people really get behind the wines here. The the Willamette Valley wine auction I think has really helped. Uh, I think you know just the marketing behind of what's happening here is is great. It's been fun. It's been fun to be kind of a part of that rising rising tide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about a couple of one thing that occurs to me. You 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 are brought up here to, to kind of start this kind of. Uh, elite brand for Jackson family. They're kind of first, one of their first entrees into, into Oregon. And you're here right as Oregon is kind of taking off in terms of recognition, as you mentioned. I'm curious about uh, if you felt any pressure. If you felt, did you feel any pressure doing those kinds of, having that kind of responsibility, that kind of time, uh, working for a place like Jackson family? Um, I mean, yeah, of course. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm afraid of my own shadow, I think. And I, I'm, I sleep poorly often thinking about weird little things about wine of course and it's I think all winemakers feel it though um, we all have to strive to like it's it's kind of uniquely American I guess too though I mean we strive to be the best right um, often in America it's like we're we're gonna be the best winemaker or the best whatever you do and I, I find that a little bit humorous but um, I, I probably have bought into it a little bit too much too um, but yeah, no, it's it's real. You know, we work really hard to make sure that we're doing the making the best wines we possibly can, and and making sure that people know about it. And uh, you know, it's not really so much about scores and stuff like that. But you know, uh, having uh, the New York Times write you up, or uh, or having like Jancis Robinson last year say that uh, you know. The Grammarine Shard was her her wine of the year for Wine Speed, or not Jancis, sorry, Karen McNeil. I, I apologize, Jancis and Karen. Um, that's that's exciting, you know. That's pretty cool. Uh, I never would have really thought that that would happen. Um, so that that's that's the fun part, right? That's that other side of the coin. Yes, it's it is stressful, but man, it's pretty cool to to see. Um, that people recognize what you're doing as well. That's that's great. So as we're, we're talking to you in July of 2020, we're in the, in the midst of, uh, of the COVID pandemic still. Uh, I'm curious about uh, how it has affected your work and and, and your work here at Grand Moraine and sort of your, your work in general. How, how has it affected and has it changed your kind of outlook on the future at all? Yeah, wow. Um, this is, the great pause is is pretty wild, you know? Um, it's been, it's been, it's, I have a three-year-old at home, um, 
so childcare was fun, um, trying to manage a winery and keep everyone safe whenever, you know, at the start we knew nothing about how it spread at all even. Um, that was scary. It's still scary, uh, you know, we're getting in our interns from all over the United States and uh, they're all in their 20s and I mean, when I was an intern, I liked to party and, uh, and I just hope that they are responsible. <laughs> But I don't think they will be. <laughs> so that's scary too, you know. Um, it's been kind of a trip. I've definitely done a lot more cellar work than I had in the last couple of years uh, because I haven't been able to, to speak, you know, we're doing Zoom, but man, I got serious screen fatigue. Um, I think everyone did. And so, you know, we haven't had been able to talk to people we haven't I normally travel I'm normally on the road uh, two to three months a year um, meeting with Psalms and and wine writers and stuff like that and uh, that completely got canceled you know um, but not only that but a lot of the time we have restaurants here and and Psalms here and uh, writers and and it's kind of a big you know it's talking about wine all the time and uh, this is probably the most I've talked in, God, months. I, I did have two winemakers come by yesterday from Santa Barbara, and that was the first time I'd actually like sat down with a winemaker and tasted wine. We sat at three very distant tables um, apart from one another. It's the first most wine talk I've had with another winemaker in ages, you know. Um, felt good. Felt really good. So, you know, that was... That's that's been that's been kind of a trip. Is you know, Steamboat got canceled this year, which is the winemakers sort of where we all get together and talk about wine for a few days. Um, all you know, all the, everything did, every course. But um, that's been that's been interesting and hard. Um, it's been hard trying to keep care of a kid and work in the cellar. Uh, it's been hard selling wine, you know, like. Uh, 80% of our wine sales, for the most part, were to restaurants. Um, whenever all the restaurants are closed, you, where are you selling your wine? Um, you know, uh, so that's that's interesting too. Uh, hopefully, we you know get our restaurants back. We have to get our restaurants back. I think the industry needs that really bad. We rely on them. I mean, I know that. Um, the Willamette Valley auction, a lot of that this year is going toward um, restaurants in one way or another, which that's important. Um, I think I think it's, you know, for us as a wine industry, we I think we're going to start realizing maybe more how, how we are connected so much to, and we already knew it, but it was like, I think it's more palpable now uh, how interdependent we are with um, with restaurants and with um, just people traveling and stuff like that, um, you know, we're still shipping wine to people, and and uh, and that's been great. The direct shipping's been really good, actually, out of the front door here. But um, you know, I don't know. I miss. I saw. I was downtown. They closed Third Street down for the the dine out McMinnville. I was walking, getting ice cream with my kid, and I saw uh, someone open a bottle of wine and serve it and it like hit me hard man that was the first time i'd seen that since march like wow and like that used to be like every day you know so i don't know that's tough
it's pretty weird to be nostalgic about seeing someone open a bottle of wine, but. <laughs> and, then even when, and then when they serve it, it, it doesn't feel the same anymore either, because it's like you have to stand apart or use a carafe or oh, yeah. pour, and you know, yeah. even then it's not quite the same. No, no. But yeah, it was just a trip to see someone open a bottle of wine at a table, man, even though they were wearing a mask. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't at my table. I can't wait, but I don't think I'm there personally yet. I, 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 haven't, I haven't ate out yet, mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. As you look ahead, you mentioned harvest. Obviously, a uh, harvest coming up. Uh, what are your what are you what is going to be different about this year's harvest? Um, a lot, you know. Um, my crew, like we've we've built a makeshift kitchen and break area outside. Um, you know, everyone's always six feet apart at least. Uh, it's going to be different, like you know. You don't see people's smiles. You can see it in their eyes, but it's different. Um, it's going to be hard to... Uh, harvest is one of those really fun times that you get to know a small group of people. It's like, uh, it's like going off to camp or something like that. Um, and you get really tight with these people. And I don't think that that's going to be really there this year. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. We might still have a beer in the parking lot before going home, but you know, it won't be like, okay, let's... Let's go all go out for dinner together now and, and all that. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's going to feel more like work, <laughs> which, you know, it's hard. It's harvest is hard. So you got to like we always are really into fun and 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 trying to make it like, yes, it's hard work, but let's let's enjoy this and, and really like develop a community. Um, you know, I have people all over the world that have worked for me and that I've worked with that, like, I feel like I have this extended community. Um, it's going to be harder to, to maintain that this year, I think. So. Might be your first real job. Dude, I know. That, that could be true. It actually does make it feel more like a job. That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to bring it down. <laughs> <laughs> what about as you look ahead? What about as you look ahead for, for Oregon wine in general? Uh, what, what, is, what does the pandemic change about Oregon wine, and, and what is it going to look like over the next five to ten years? Yeah, I mean, God, I wish... I mean, predicting the future is always funny, right? You can say whatever you want, but... Um, I don't know. I, I honestly really don't know. I think... I think it's going to ch change our sales channels in, in some way. I think it's got to. Um, I think I think we're gonna have to focus more on on direct to consumer on on communicating more directly with with the people that are are buying our wines or not necessarily the people that are buying our wines but the people who are drinking our wines. Mm -hmm. I think that that's gonna be more and more important. And I think it was already, but this has really pushed us to where we have to do that now. That's good. Mm -hmm. um, I, we want people to be more connected with what we're doing with. Um, the stewardship of the land and, and with agriculture in general. I think people have a, a yearning to do that. So um, it could be a good thing. I hope it's a good thing. Uh, it's going to definitely require more legwork and uh, more outreach. I don't know what else, you know. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I hope. I hope we all get to keep doing what we're doing and, and I think we will, but I hope that this doesn't just consolidate you know the wine industry to those 120 grocery store brands you know um, 
that's what I hope. That's 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 a fear of mine. Mm -hmm. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, I don't. It won't entirely. But it, this has been really hard on small producers. So. Yeah. What about just look ahead for yourself and for Grand for your the Grand Moraine Zena Crown Jackson Family Project here in Oregon? What do you see for yourself looking ahead? Um, you know, I one of my favorite people in the wine industry is Steve at Christome. Um, he's been there since '92, you know, and like for them, it's not about like making more wine or anything. It's just making better wine every year and just living it and and doing the best you can and. That's what I want to do. That's always what I wanted to do. I've never necessarily wanted to like have make the biggest brand in the world or anything like that. It's like I want to just do what we're doing really well and just keep doing it. Um, it's what I love doing. Um, it's di every year is different, you know. Uh, so that that's the fun in that. Uh, and we only get well. This year will be my 21st harvest, but as I kind of talked, I'd work back and forth a lot. Um, what am I going to get? Maybe 50 harvest in my life? Um, I don't know. It's not a lot. That's that's not a lot to to really like hone in on something. If you only get to do something 50 times, and every time it's a little bit different, um, <laughs> so it keeps it interesting. So yeah, hopefully we just keep making better wine. Let's see. You had mentioned one of the things that made it fun, interesting, interesting for you was experimenting and trying new and, and new and interesting things. Is there anything on the horizon that you're excited to try? You know, uh, yeah, there's so much. Uh, I, I try. I've been experimenting with different things every single year, and and um, you know, I think that within my lifetime, probably within the next ten years, I'm assuming there's going to be ingredient labeling on wine. Um, and one of my goals in life has been like, I want to take grapes and put them in a tank and then in a barrel and have great wine. And how do you do that? Um, and so I've been experimenting more and more with, um, minimal interventions, uh, or no interventions at all. Uh, that's something I'm really into right now. That's been kind of the last three years that I've been working on that. Um, I guess my goal is once ingredient labeling comes along for my wine to say grapes and some sulfur, you know, um, and maybe no sulfur. Uh, the sparkling wines we're making right now, um, we're adding a tiny bit of sulfur at the end, but it would, it's still such a small amount that it would be considered sulfur free uh, in terms of regulatory, um, uh, I guess in America or regulations. So. Um, that's kind of what I'm into right now, I guess. Uh, that's been fun. It's been fun. It's a challenge, right? Um, to make world-class wines that are like, not just super nerdy, you know, that anyone can enjoy, but with techniques that are, were used at the dawn of civilization. So, um, <laughs> that's my challenge. No big deal. You got this. Simple. Simple. <laughs> it's funny. It, it is simple, but then it isn't. <laughs> so what uh, what advice would you have, or what would your words of wisdom be to someone who wanted to join the Oregon wine industry? I mean, it just depends on what you're wanting to get into, I guess, is go taste wine and get to know people. It's all about who you know, right? And, and uh, you're not going to be thought about 
for that one position that you might be qualified for or, or really want if the person who has it doesn't know you. Most of these jobs aren't advertised, you know. Um, and prepare to get your hands dirty for a long time, you know. I, I tell all my interns, it's like, you got to work 10 harvests before you probably even expect to have a full-time job somewhere, you know. Um, that's the reality of it. Uh, the, the thing is, like, again, going back to some music references, I mean, Pink has, Pink's really into wine, right? Um, how, many, how many musicians and, or actors, I guess, are really into wine? Like, when you're a kid, you think like the coolest thing in the world would be to a rock to be a rock star and then the rock stars to them the coolest thing in the world is to own a winery or to be a winemaker a lot of the time it's like okay so if rock stars want your job it's going to be pretty hard <laughs> nice <laughs> you know just take it that far <laughs> it's going to be hard to get it <laughs> so you got to work hard man and know the right people and be in the right place at the right time. Uh, a lot of it's luck. Um, taste a lot. That's fun. <laughs> awesome. All the questions I have for you, uh, we, I keep talking to you all day, but we got to stop at some point. So, <laughs> anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we uh, we didn't cover that we should have covered? Oh man, I don't know. No. <laughs> thanks so much for your time i'm glad to give you a chance to talk wine a little bit today and uh, appreciate your time appreciate your stories yeah. and, and all your all your all your thoughts here today and we'll let you off the hook thanks thanks thank you for joining us for this edition of the oregon wine history archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our project a success be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>